You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Channel Tennis Podcast from the 2017 U.S. Open. These are always a little tricky to do at the majors. A, finding a quiet spot, and B, doing a podcast that is relevant when you listen to it and not overtaken by results. But we are going to try to do that today with my colleague and friend, Paul Anacone. Paul, as you know, former top-tier player, coach of Pete Sampras and Roger Federer, among others. He's now also published author. His book, Coaching for Life, is available on Amazon and on Paul's website. Goes well beyond tennis, but chock full of great stories about Pete, Roger, Tim Henman, Sloan Stevens, some of his coaching through the years, and is just one of these great philosophy texts. Um, so Paul and I were planning to do this if we're uh, trafficking in full disclosure, as we always are. Paul and I were planning to do this previewing Rafa Roger 38 in their first encounter at the U.S. Open. Obviously, that has been overtaken. Juan Martin Del Potro last night, we're recording this on a, a Thursday, Juan Martin Del Potro beat Roger Federer in a, in a four-set quarter final last night. So instead, we have Del Nadal in one semifinal of the men's, Kevin Anderson against Pablo Carreño Busta in another Women's semis have yet to be played. Those are going to happen tonight, Thursday night. Venus Williams, Sloane Stevens, and Madison Keys, Coco Vandeweghe for American women. So Paul and I talk a little bit about Federer and what happened last night, the recency effect. We talk a lot about Rafa Nadal and his mental makeup. I'll spoiler alert this. Paul's now picking Rafa to win the title. Talk some women's tennis too. Talk about coaching tips um, and some of the points Paul tried to stress in his book. Anyway, good uh, good conversation to come. Here we go, Paul Anacone. I feel like we should uh, we should have video on the podcast yeah, so the video uh, cast. people could see where we're doing this. Um, it's a room filled with scotch, and we'll leave it at that. Um, so we are recording this Thursday morning, 
which is a problem with these podcasts during the events. The, the plots are changing quickly. I think I tweeted out that uh, we were going to do a anticipating Roger Rafa Bowl 38. We don't have that. We have uh, Rafa Delpo Bowl instead. Why? Why is that? What happened? What? A, I mean, just I just thought an unbelievable effort from Del Potro, and it's just stemming from what happened in the previous match against team, down two sets to love, getting three games the first two sets against team being sick, finding a way to win that. I, I had no idea what to expect, what was going to be in the fuel tank last night, but to see his level, um, Del Potro's level was amazing. Huge serving, huge forehands, we always expect that. But that backhand what about side, that backhand? yeah, there was nothing wrong with the backhand. Used the slice, hit some great two-handed passes. Most importantly, hit a, a couple of huge two-handed returns at big moments. So you know, while it's never fun to watch Roger lose, if there's one guy he's going to lose to, it kind of warms your heart a little bit that it's Del Potro. I saw I saw Team also yesterday, and I'm thinking you're you're 24 and you let a match like that go. Um, it's got to be devastating, but it, it's got to help a little bit that uh, at least the guy backed it up by beating Roger. But, I, you know, Roger came into press, and it occurred to me the last time we saw him in a press conference after a Grand Slam defeat, Wimbledon 2016. It, it had been a while. Uh, part of that is, is he obviously didn't play the U.S. Open or, or the French, but also there were two titles in between. Knowing him as you do, How's he feeling this morning? I mean, does, can he big picture this and say it was an unbelievable year? I was a two sets from being number one in the world, or or does he say this is one that got away? No, I, I, he you know one of his biggest one of Roger's biggest skills is his pragmatism. You know, he, I, I've never met anyone that uses emotions so well in a positive way, but doesn't let the negative side of it kind of sweep him under. Um, he, he's very pragmatic while he. You know, while I'm sure the the loss stings him, he's he's also got great perspective. You know, he he's had a great year. Um, he lost the match, and I I I didn't see all or hear all of the excerpts. I did see one piece that he said something like, "Look, I never felt great coming mm-hmm. in and right. going through this tournament." Right. So I'm sure it wasn't a total shock. While he is the model of optimism. He also knows he wasn't playing spectacular tennis, but he played okay. It wasn't and it wasn't like he played badly against against El Potro. So he can look at that and go, look, you know, I think he played. He had those four set points in the third set, and that two break, of them. Yeah, that breaker he, was. He missed. He missed a first serve target on the first one that Del Potro ripped a forehand on. He missed the target by probably a foot on the serve, which allowed Del Potro to get a great strike on it. But still, Del Potro had to hit a good shot. But then the, the missed opportunity was the short backhand that he kind of double-clutched on because he, I think he just second-guessed himself. So, you know, it's one of those things where he'll sit back and he'll go, okay, you know, didn't play great, played okay, and played a guy that played better than me. And... Um, I think he'll just look at this in the macro, and he'll go, ah, disappointing to lose in the quarters, but wow, what a great year so far, and he's feeling pretty good, and he'll probably just try to finish strong. So the day before the match, he he tweeted out a, uh, it was like a gif of Del Potro, you say gif or jif? I don't know, gif. Did you ever right? settle that? You know. I say gif. Um, <laughs> he, he tweeted out a gif of uh, Del Potro hitting a forehand. The and Thor it was a, thing? Yeah, yeah, hammer the, of Thor, and I, and I thought, A, that was really cool. B, 
be that sort of shows an appreciation and a perspective beyond himself. But I also thought it was a little weird. I mean, imagine, uh, you know, we can analogize this to any other sport. Imagine LeBron James during the NBA Finals saying, check out this sweet handle by Steph. Right. Um, is that... Is there anything strategic? Is there any statement he's trying to make? Or is this just a tennis fan who saw big forehands and, hey, if I have to play the guy next round, that's a pity, but I don't want any, uh, I, I don't want that to, to color yeah, how I feel no, about it's not, it's, so Yeah, it's not how he operates at all. There's no hidden agenda. He is a little kid at heart. He First of all, he has fun with the emojis and all that stuff, number one. Right. And number two is he is a fan of excellence. And there, look, there's no secret. There's no secret on the men's tour that Del Potro's forehand is probably the biggest weapon in the game when it's hot. And so for Roger to see it and to see that forehand go nuclear and to be able right. to to be able to That's right. You, you think yeah, I'm thinking absolutely. about you said that and I'm thinking wait. And then I don't you know, I mean, we say Serena serve on the women's side. Biggest weapon on Men's tennis, the Delpo forehand. I think so. Yeah. I, I mean, what, you know, when you have the Isner serve or the Karlovich serve, you can yeah, you can always yeah. say. But the the Del Potro forehand is the biggest, you know, I think is the biggest weapon in the game when it's hot and when you get into rallies. And so, no, I think he has a fond appreciation, and I could absolutely see the childlike chuckle when he's going through the thing and seeing that, going, "Oh my God, that is that thing is a rocket." <laughs> and uh, I, I just thought that was. Um thought that was very telling. Yeah, um, Delpo, Delpo, uh, Delpo Rafa, thoughts? I think it's a, you know, look, I, I thought last night was going to be a tough matchup for Del Potro against Roger because of the illness, five sets, yada, yada, yada. He blew that theory out of the water for me. I think the same thing against Rafa, that Rafa, the Rafa forehand able to get to the two-handed side. Um I, it's going to be much more difficult for Del Potro to get a lot of forehands, so he's got to figure out how he's going to do that against Rafa. So I think this—I mean, I think this is Rafa's match um, to win. But you know, as Rafa said, I saw Rafa say something about it. He's one of the guys that he can take the racket out of your hand. You know, big serving and big forehand. So I think Del Potro's got a chance. But I'm—you know—I'm leaning, uh, you know, 65 Rafa. Rafa seems to be a bit more, I don't say a bad mood, uh, a bit less playful than uh, usual this tournament. Do you, do you sense that at all? Um, I think he's in his worker mode. You know, I think he's been kind of, uh, you know, he's in his worker mode because he hasn't played great since the French. And so he's probably, you know, these guys, I, I don't know how they do it. I would get tired too because, you know, they go into the press conferences and, you know, I'm sure a lot of it's about, you know, you haven't won since the French. You lost to Gilles Muller. You lost to 17-year-old right, Shapovalov. Right. You lost, you know, you lost to Kyrgios. And, you know, so they get tired of that stuff. So he's probably just in worker mode. And that's more of his mentality. He tends not to be real jovial anyway. He's pretty pragmatic in his pressers. Um, but I think he's just got his, you know, he's got his, uh, his hard hat on. He's carrying his lunch pail. This is potentially his last... Grand Slam with uh, with Uncle Tony, though I was told don't uh, don't don't go overboard on that. You, we we may see him again, but yeah, but the succession plan to Carlos Moya is, is not going to be a shock to the system. I mean, it's been in the works for a while, and I think if you even if you watch him practice, it's pretty easy to see that Carlos Moya is really the, the principal voice. But what? Uh, what effect, if any, do you think that has? I don't think it really has any. First of all, I'll be shocked if we don't see Uncle Tony anymore. I think we'll see him. We'll just see him a lot less. Um, 
I think that the transition to Carlos Moya was a great move, and it's paying huge dividends. Carlos is one of the sharper guys um, around, and more importantly, he has a very good relationship with Uncle Tony and Rafa. So he has immediate buy-in because of his credibility and that relationship. So I think Carlos has done an amazing job, and I think Uncle Tony's just going to, you know, we've talked about him stepping back and all this, and this is his le- I, I don't believe that. I think he's going to be there less but I think right. he's going to be there. And um, I, I don't think it plays a big role. I think Rafa is so in the moment with what he does. It's not about you know nostalgia or being sentimental. It's about how do I play the next point. And that's what he does better than anybody potentially in the history of the game. He fascinates me in, in the sense that on the, he plays and the results speak to a certain confidence and self-belief. And you, you often say this, and I think you're right. Beating Rafa Nadal in the best of five match is one of the toughest tasks in tennis and yet there does seem to be I don't want to say an, an insecurity but there does seem to be a, a certain fragile you know, fragility to his nerves at some point even you know his fr- press conference he won his match and the very first sentence was about how nervous he was taking the court um is that you're 31 years old you don't know how long the window's staying open is that just I didn't feel great on the practice court that day to me it's this real contrast where he fights like crazy and yet there is this sort of uh, there's this fragileness to him that you don't often see in a champion. Yeah, I think I, I really think it's his makeup. His makeup and how he was built is hard work, blue collar. I'm going to work harder than the next guy. I'm going to be this relentless optimist. I'm going to bring big energy. And I, it's hard for me to grasp someone that's that great that still has some of the doubts that he has. But it's there. And I... I don't know why, and I think the reason why, if I were to you know look at things in retrospect, is that's how he's been built from ten years of age, from Uncle Tony on. Right. Where Carter do this, you got to you know, and and I think that's why so much of the humility based responses we get from him and Uncle Tony is about reinforcing that so that he doesn't get lazy. But what it's done is it's created a Rafa Nadal that actually can be vulnerable mentally. At times, he's never going to not try. He's, right, he's right. never going to not compete. But look, we saw at this tournament every match until the last match, or the match every match until Dolgopolov, he's been vulnerable the first set. Mm-hmm. You know, he's been, you know, he can get. He in, said that he's right. like, I came out nervous. Right, and and, uh, and and some and some nerves are good. Whereas you look at a guy like Federer, or even you know, you look at people like that. There's a sense of self that he knows who he is. He knows how great he is, and he knows that yeah, I might, I might not start off great, but I'll figure it out. It's not about doubt. Right. Whereas right. Rafa's can be perceived as doubt periodically very rarely on clay but on the other surfaces it's doubt and and it takes a great player to exploit it um, but it also takes a incredibly resilient player to exploit it over three out of five sets because that doubt dissipates and what happens during matches is his relentless optimism and enthusiasm and point-for-point mentality take over. And because he's such a great athlete, because there's so much margin on his ground strokes, and because he's so great, even when there is doubt, he makes you work so hard that because it's Rafa Nadal, you start to doubt at some point during the the match. It's almost like he has to convince himself, (laughs) like, give me an hour. Um, This is sort of my my segue to you, that Uncle Tony, and he would say this, I mean, this isn't a... you know, this this is not pejorative or anything, but he he's not a rah rah unbr. I mean, he's kind of a hard ass, and he's not the most positive guy necessarily, and that's not his style. And clearly, he knows his nephew better than 
anyone. He's not one of these, uh, you know, salesman type guys that tries to spin everything uh, in the most favorable possible light and clearly found this balance. How do you, as a coach, do that yourself? Balancing, you, you want good vibes, you want confidence, you want to be positive, but you also need this, this element of pragmatism. You need to be believable. How do you find that balance when you're coaching a player between positive but also you can't sell me a bill of goods? Right. Like I don't want to roll my eyes mm-hmm. every time my coach talks Sure. I, I think, well, for me, I try to be eternally optimistic because I think that's the best way to motivate people. I'm not a believer in beating people down with being negative. I think you can do that more lean that way when players are younger to convince them to work harder to be disciplined but as you get to the professional level I think the majority of it has to be about optimism and positivity but you have to do it as you mentioned in a realistic way Um, you've got to be able to know when to do that and every player is different every player you know reacts differently um roger is very realistic he's very pragmatic he's okay with criticism especially if it's constructive he's okay with you know your backhand wasn't very good today here's what was going on and he'd be like okay how do we fix it you know other other players get very defensive so you've got to figure out the player that you're with and understand how to constructively criticize and as a coach that's one of the most difficult things to do at the professional level because you don't want to bash confidence right you you want to make sure that they realize how good they are you need to manage it and figure out how to push and drive it so there is a delicate balance but you have to really cater that around the personality that you are dealing with and it's not it's not about lying it's about understanding and figuring out how to push the right button so you have to be realistic you have to be true but you also have to be very strategic how do i mean you get to this a little bit in your book but maybe expand how do you get to know your player in such a compressed amount of time right it's it's like dating and you can spend months or years getting to know your significant other before you decide to get married when player calls you and says hey i'd like to work with you meet me in Cincinnati, you've got to have some sense of their personality. How do you sort of accelerate that get to know you? What buttons do I push? And what will motivate them and what will not motivate them? How do you get to know your players so quickly? Yeah, the clock ticks fast in sports and particularly particularly when you're weighed on results. And that's very that, that gets accelerated. So for me, I mean, there's a chapter in my book called The Magician and the Mechanic. Right. And that magician and mechanic is is more geared towards physical skills of how they approach their their trade okay but there's also two components that come into play which is the head and the heart three the three components that i use that make up a player is the head which is the ability to think through things the heart which is the ability or lack of ability to to unconditionally compete and then the talent Talent is what you got. You know, you, I can look aesthetically and go, wow, that kid's unbelievably talented. But the other two are the areas that drive you most clearly at the professional level. So as a coach, you look at the magician and mechanic scale in terms of the physical talents, and then you weigh the psychological and emotional components, and you try to do it as quickly as, can, as you can, and then you come up with your strategy of how to manage and coach the player. 
everybody's different, the components are different, but you have to understand when to push which button and how hard to make them run to truly believe in who they are, but also to come up with a clear strategic plan. And so I look at those three categories and very quickly try to go, okay, this is how I want to try to operate. And then you adjust according to the feedback of how the player reacts to make sure that they're buying into the message and making sure that they're sticking with the plan. And what is the delta player to player? I mean, we don't have to get into specifics, but you know, we all know that Roger Federer's talent level is different from you know, it's just pick, pick, you know, point to any name in the top hundred. Um, but the, the head and the heart, I mean, well, that, that's with, that, that's the that's the thing, John. That's what makes it that all time greats have all three of those categories as high as close to a ten on right. a scale of one to ten as possible. You know, talent-wise, I don't believe in tens. So, talent-wise, Roger's probably a a nine-seven-five. You know, head-wise, he's probably pretty close. Heart-wise, he's probably pretty close. So, his all three of those categories are pretty close. Rafa Nadal might be talent-wise just below that. Heart-wise, just above that. And so it all kind of balances together. So you have to figure out. And basically, Rafa, like you said, a lot of it is about that for lack of a better term, a little bit of insecurity, a little bit of am I, am I really that good or do I have to work that hard? Right. And so as a coach, you're trying to figure out which buttons to push to believe. And for instance, that's one of the things I struggled with with Sloan Stevens. Sloan is off the charts talent-wise. Head and heart, as a 19 to 21-year-old, she's trying to figure it out. She's trying to navigate, how do I get myself to unconditionally compete? How do I get myself with my head to think through the adversity on the courts and trust my talent? So as a young teenager and a young, you know, someone in her early 20s, Sloan really struggled. Now Sloan's had an injury, a little bit of a taste of mortality, and here we are at the U.S. Open. She's in the semifinal. She's had a spectacular summer after coming back from from this injury has her talent gotten better no but her head and heart have matured she's getting there so those scales are coming closer together and the end result is her true capabilities are rising up and that to me is the beginning of greatness and that's why someone like sloan can be so spectacular is because the talent level is so high and those other two areas she's still working on, and they're improving, right. if that makes any sense. Yeah, it also would seem to me that they, they play off each other, right? Yep. And her, her next tournament, after a great summer, and at, at minimum, as we record this, uh, a semifinal at the U.S. Open, um, you would think that would have an impact. The, the head and the heart are obviously not static in a way the talent might be. Right. Correct. Your yeah. talent's not going to go down by no, a not in a magnitude, week. not in but. a week. Then you know, and that, and that's why you know one, another one of my biggest themes in the book, John, is about how good is your average. Show me how good your average right. is. And right. I remember, you know, one of the stories I say, you know, in, in my book is I remember a 23 year old Pete Sampras telling me he wasn't playing. He wasn't. It was a certain period in his career where he wasn't playing that well when he was younger on a clay court swing. And I remember as a young coach being nervous about it. Yet he didn't seem that concerned. And so I talked to him about it on a flight, and I was asking him about it. And he said, "Look, he said I think I was overthinking things a little bit during the clay court season. You know, you know, I think it was on a flight to Queens getting ready for Wimbledon." And he said, you know, I, I just, I just got to get back to basics and keep things simple on the grass. I'll be fine. You know, just shorten up my returns, hit my targets, just keep it really simple and understand um, 
that on a given day when I play well, that's not my skill. When I play well, I know I'm not going to beat anybody. I mean, no, I'm not going to lose to anybody. I know that. But my, 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 my good fortune is that when I play average, if I keep my mind, my head, and my heart, I'm going to beat 95% of the players anyway. And so that's the ability to be pragmatic, not arrogant right. about what you have in terms of skills and manage the other two areas so that when you play average, you win. We saw that. We've seen that a number of times in Roger Federer. We saw it the first two rounds in the U.S. Open to get him into the tournament. Don't forget, we saw it the first two rounds in Australia this year, too. He wasn't yeah, great right. against Jurgen like, Melzer. Exactly. He won in four sets. Noah Rubin. He, Noah Rubin, like 7-5-6-3-7-6, wasn't great. And then he beat Thomas Burdick yeah. in one of the best tennis. Like 89 minutes Yeah, uh, one of the clinic. best tennis exhibitions. Right. And that's because he understands that I'm not going to get really emotional if I play great or terrible. No yeah. matter how that's I play, really interesting. I'm going to think my way through it. And it's that it's that middle chord that right. Uh, it's that middle chord that makes you up, that gets you into if you're that good quarter semis and finals. And for me, as a former coach of Sloan, to watch Sloan Stevens start to figure that out, that's exciting. And she's done that a bunch of times in New York already. Um, we're we're doing this right before the women's semis, so we will either uh, you know it'll either be obsolete or we'll look silly or. Uh it's but so uh, let's not spend too much time here. But r- real quick, any thoughts on uh, today's match? I, you know, it's so hard, and I don't I don't ever root against Venus Williams because I'm such a huge fan of what she's done and this age and this stage in her career. I, but I just think Sloane's going to find a way to win that match. Really? That, yeah, I do. I think Sloane's going to find a way to win that match um, unless Venus serves extremely well, um, and I think. I think we're going to have a Sloan Stevens uh, Madison Keys, Keys final, yeah. which I think would be tremendous for the game. What? Um, one last thing on Sloan. Well, if if that crowd is ninety ten, which of course won't be in any way an offense to Sloan, it's just fondness for right. Venus and Absolutely. appreciation of the story. A ninety ten crowd of twenty three thousand people is going to have what impact on Sloan? It Stevens? could have a lot. That's what I would you know from yesterday's win until tonight's match. I would be making sure as her coach she understands what she's getting into. Right. And that's part of the head and heart stuff that I talked about. And, and she has to expect that it's not derogatory to you. It's about this great champion. So you just mind your P's and Q's and stay with the plan regardless of what's happening. And that could be a problem. Um, so real quick, last question. I, um, the great quote of the tournament. Notice how we haven't talked. I mean, I feel, I feel, let's, actually, let's, let's correct that. Let, let's give a little uh, – I think every the same way we sort of overlooked Delpo, at least perhaps I did, uh, let's, let's talk a, two seconds about uh, Carreno Busta and Kevin Anderson. We should not omit them from this conversation. 100%. Obviously, breakthrough events for both of them. First Grand Slam semis for Bet's going to be the first final for whoever wins that match. Um, I, I think Anderson's probably on form – He's my the, favorite. The favorite. Yeah. Is, 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 is there any way that we have become so fixated on that half of the draw that the great irony of all this is Kevin Anderson's going to win this tournament? I mean, he's got a puncher's chance because of his power and his capabilities to hit people off the court. I, I can't see him. I can see him beating uh, Delpo mm-hmm. if he gets to the finals. He could, um, but I would still favor I say, Delpo. Ten, ten days ago, if you said Kevin Anderson versus Delpo, yeah, you'd unbelievable, probably say, right? You'd probably People say 65, 35 Kevin me? Anderson, right? Uh, I mean, Delpo had really yeah, been... Yeah, but, uh, but, but if it's in that moment now, Delpo's been there before. Yeah, exactly. I, I would give Delpo a 55-45 right. myself. Yeah. Um, but if he plays Rafa, I go... 
that's eighty five fifteen Rafa. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's so funny. I mean, Delpo has not had this breakthrough stand. I mean, a year ago he was playing great tennis. Has not had a tremendous twenty seventeen, but boy, here he's uh, he's been terrific. He's been great. Yep. Um, so, final question. I uh, th- there was one quote of the tournament far and away for me was delivered by Naomi Osaka. But I thought of you. I thought of your book. And um, they said, what do you think about – it was a kind of standard tennis interview, nothing major. And they said to her at one point, they said, what do you – I'm paraphrasing. I don't know in front of me. But they said, what do you think about during uh, – what goes through your mind during a match? Do you remember what she said? No. Ever see that commercial for if you and a loved one might suffer from myelothelioma? <laughs> Call 1-800 <laughs> – <laughs> she had this whole rant about uh, she couldn't get this <laughs> commercial, you know, this, uh, this class hysterical. action suit for asbestos or whatever oh, it was. I mean, uh, um, and everyone had a good laugh, and I think it made dead spin. But but I thought there was, and I thought back to your book about not clogging your head. And to me, there was actually something really revealing about it's not about necessarily oh seventy two percent of the time at the deuce right. point he serves to down a tee. Um, is, is there a benefit to just, I don't want to say hit ball, see ball, but there is clearing your mind? I mean, does, does a response like that surprise you, that, that here's this player in a Grand Slam, young talent, and what's going through her head, an infomercial for a class action cancer Right, well, well, let's let's think about it, and let's think about great athletes and great sports. Golfers have plenty of time between each shot, right? So they're going to take time to detach and get away from their process. They're not going to overwhelm themselves with thoughts and strategy. They're going to keep it really simple. I feel the same way about tennis players, particularly on the changeover. There are times on the changeovers when you have those 90 seconds. It's not about um, agonizingly going through, you know, millisecond by millisecond in your mind. It's about reminding yourself of a clear plan and some of that is about detaching from the stress of the next point and it's about just taking your time catching your breath and then refocusing so i can see stepping away well we talk about the comedy of that quote but stepping away momentarily to then refocus because it's very difficult over you know for a women's match maybe a three and a half hour match or a men's match right. it could be five hours for every moment every millisecond to be about what's next what's right. next what you so you have to be able to regroup so i think there's a refreshing uh component to that but when you step up to the line to be prepared to serve and when you step up to the line to be prepared to return you have to have clarity you have to have composure and you have to have confidence and what surrounds all of those is a very simplistic theme about what you're trying to execute next. So however you get there, it can vary, but you better get there. What, what are you thinking about? What are you thinking about on changeovers? I'm thinking about what's, you know. I mean, it's 90 seconds. You're yeah, a, qu- a quick overview about what's been working and a quick overview about what you need to do differently to have more of a positive impact. I, I tr- you know, you, again, now all this stuff is is. You're basically guessing that you can be, you know, very objective and flush the emotion out. It's very hard because right, you're right. In, a, in a huge emotional environment. You have to be able to get through the emotion and make a pragmatic evaluation and move on. In a perfect world, that's what you're trying to do, and the best of the best are able to do that. All right. Uh, last prediction. I predict Rafa Nadal will be the champion wow. of the U.S. Open, and I predict that we're going to have Sloan and Madison. And with that one, I'm just going to be sitting there with my popcorn watching. Nadal and Federer sweeping the slams in 2017. What a story. How about that? Um, 
That was great. We're going to link your book. That was great. Thanks, man. All right. All right. Good talk with Paul Anacone. Always great talking shop with him. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Jamie Lasanti. We'll see how we do on these U.S. Open predictions. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Again, Paul's book, Coaching for Life, is available on his website as well as on Amazon Great Read. We're going to have another guest coming up soon, but keep the suggestions coming. We've had some good ones recently, including Rod Laver and Anna Ivanovich. Uh, always a pleasure doing these, and uh, thanks again for all your feedback. Enjoy the last few days of the U.S. Open, and we'll do another one in seven days. Take care, everyone. Mm-hmm.